This sermon, A Hopeful Start, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, October 29th, 2023 at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, good morning. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is Derek. I have, I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. And this morning, I do have the privilege of bringing God's Word. And speaking of God's Word, would you open your Bibles to the book of Judges? We begin a new series this morning. Judges is the seventh book in your Bible. It's right after Joshua and just before Ruth. If you're unfamiliar with Judges, maybe you've never sat through a preaching series on Judges. I think that's probably pretty common. (laughs) Judges is not the most popular book to turn into a Sunday morning preaching series. But Judges is quite a book. As you know, it contains some of the, shall we call them, Hall of Fame stories for children's ministry. Samson, Gideon, going against the mighty army. At the same time, one might be able to argue that uh, some of these stories should be banned from children's ministry. Uh, But Judges is quite a book. It's dark. Never been in Judges, you're going to learn real quick it's dark. It's violent. It is morally challenging. We'll be talking about that in the coming weeks. At times, it seems to be pure perversion. (laughs) Some of the things that we will read about that happened. Simply put, Judges is chaotic. It is chaotic. And this is why we we decided as a team to call this series Christ in the Chaos. As we come to the book of Judges, we find that it shows us how God is forging a worshiping community. He's forging a people for himself. In a chaotic world indeed, yes, but even in the midst of his own people, there is much chaos. In fact, by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, we read these famous words. These are the concluding words of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That was chaos then, and boy, is it chaos today. In this world, in our country, in every way, we we live in the midst of chaos. Doesn't, Doesn't it seem like we live in a world that is more and more chaotic every day? Increasingly, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. So then the question for us as believers as we begin this series is this. When things get chaotic, when life gets chaotic, when we stand and try and and serve our Lord and walk with our Savior in a chaotic world, where do we find hope? Where do we find hope in the chaos? I mentioned earlier, Judges is quite a book, but it's in the Bible for a reason. God put these stories in his word, and that reason is to point us to and ground us in 
our hope in both life and death, especially in times of chaos. And so we're going to be unpacking that hope over the next 22 weeks. Our series is 22 weeks long. And just to prepare you, the first three weeks, including this morning, is going to be more big picture. We're not going to dive into all the details of this morning's text. These first three weeks, we're really looking at the first uh, section of Judges to, to, to find out what was going on. How did Israel get here? What's the issue as we roll into the different judges? How did Israel get to this place? What is the point here? And then in, verse, in weeks 4 through 19, we're going to look at the individual, individual judges. How God used, as he builds his worshiping community, flawed and weak and sinful men in moral decline to fulfill his pure and perfect purposes. Not just in the Old Testament, but in the church today and ultimately established in the heavens for eternity. So would you stand with me? Yes, we're going to read. Uh, we're actually looking at verses 1 through 19a this morning. 1 through 19. Let's read together. Judges 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you to the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the, Can the Canaanites, who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites, who lived in Hebron, now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriatha Arba, and they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debur. The name of Debur was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Oxa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Cable's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Oxa, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me the springs of water. 
And Caleb gave her the upper springs and lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah was captured, or Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. We come to it with humble hearts that you might feed us, that you might teach us, that you might lead us, that you might grow us. Be glorified now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today may be the happiest day of our series in Judges. It only gets worse from here, trust me. This truly is probably the happiest day as we look at Israel's response to the death of Joshua. And, and the title of this sermon this morning reflects that. It was a hopeful start for Israel. Next week, we'll see. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see how, how things turn out. But at least this morning, it was a hopeful start. And in this hopeful start, we are going to encounter three unchanging truths that I want to draw out that are really going to be with us throughout the series. Three unchanging truths that I believe, that I believe we struggle not to lose sight of amid our own chaos. Three things that are critical for us to remember, that they're laid out for us in the very first chapter, and we will continue to see them as we go through the book of Judges. And the very first truth that is that we tend to forget in our own chaos is the supreme sufficiency of God. For those of you taking notes, that is our first point this morning. The supreme sufficiency of God. Notice how the book of Judges begins. It begins with a nation in crisis. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) It begins with a nation in crisis. Look at verse 1. After the death of Joshua. Don't just read over that because that that catapults us. That not only forces us to look back but it sets, helps us understand all that, understand what was going on in the book of Judges. Now, I don't know how much that you know about Joshua. Uh, many, many say George Washington was the first great American hero. Well, like George Washington, Joshua was a national hero. If Joshua had lived in the time of our country, there would be a statue on the mall of Joshua. He was a great leader who left an enormous legacy for Israel. The preceding book that bears his name, the book of Joshua, 
If you've never read it, I encourage you, read it now so that you can get backdrop here. But, but that, that book recounts how God used Joshua to, if you will, break the backs of the Canaanites as he took the mantle from Moses at the Jordan River. Remember, Moses didn't lead Israel into the promised land. No, God was disciplining Moses. Moses turned the mantle over Joshua. He went to up, climbed up a mountain and died. And Joshua, Joshua led God's people into the promised land. And now, Joshua, this national hero, this amazing leader, he is dead. That's the first thing the writer of Judges wants you to know. There's so much to come. But here's where we start. Joshua's gone. He's dead. And Israel's mission is incomplete. If you read Joshua chapter 23 and 24, what you find there is Joshua's farewell speech to the leaders of Israel. The the nation of Israel uh, was comprised of 12 tribes, each tribe named after one of the sons of Jacob. And in his final days, in chapter 23 and 24 of Joshua, in his final days, in that farewell speech, he charged the tribes to finish off the Canaanites. He said, finish off the Canaanites, finish what I started Go in, finish them off, and take possession of the land that I have allotted to each tribe. Joshua 24, 28 says that after the speech, Joshua sent the people away. Every man, every tribe, to his inheritance. And then at the ripe old age of 110, Joshua died. So that's where we we are as we come to the book, as we come to the book of Judges. Israel was in crisis. Their leader is dead. The mission incomplete. The future very uncertain. So what will Israel do? What will Israel do? And I think this is a, a good moment to pause and ask us ourselves the same question. What would you do? What would you do? Maybe you're experiencing uncertainty right now. Maybe you're in a new season of life. Marriage, fatherhood, motherhood, retirement. You're an empty nester now. Things have changed. A new season of life. Perhaps for you there's uncertainty of the future. You look at our country and you go, Lord, what is going to happen? You, you look at the, at the global news and you wonder, what, where are we going? Maybe there's uncertainty with your finances or your job. Maybe your health. You've just been diagnosed and you're not sure what to do, where to go. Maybe for you, you're experiencing unimaginable loss. The death of your own Joshua, a father who had such an impact on your life, someone who was a towering presence in your life for good, a father, a mother, a mentor, they're gone. 
Where do you turn? In those moments, life can feel chaotic. Forget what's going on in the world. I'm talking about my own little private world. It's chaos. There's uncertainty. I'm not sure where to turn. I'm not sure where to go. That person was there for me, and now they're not. Where do you turn? Where's your confidence? What is the source of your hope? Well, notice Israel's response in verse 1. At the death, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? I love this. It's so easy to read right over this. Joshua was a national hero loved by Israel. The nation thrived under his leadership. In fact, in chapter 24 of Joshua, verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the works that the Lord did for Israel. And yet what we see in verse 1, as successful and loved as Joshua was, Israel had hope. They had hope because they knew the true source of their fruitfulness and well-being. It wasn't in the national hero. It wasn't in a great leader. It wasn't Joshua. It was the Lord. The Lord was their help. The Lord was their strength. The Lord was their source. And guess what? This was part of Joshua's amazing leadership. He taught this. They learned this from him. Again, in his farewell speech, Joshua reminded them in chapter 23, and now I'm about to go, now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. In other words, I'm, gonna, I'm about to die. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. Do you see what Joshua did there? He said, listen, I'm about to pass. I'm about to be gone. But don't worry, because it's not about me. Don't worry, because your, your future, the certainty, your assurance, your hope, it's not in me. It's in the Lord. God has been faithful to Israel. He made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he kept them. Joshua is gone. That's hard. But God has gone nowhere. He is right there with them. And he hears their prayer. Look at verse 2. They inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Notice what the Lord does here. He gives them wisdom and promise. Judah shall go up. Wisdom. Here, here's how you're going to do this. Judah shall go up. Judah will go and take on the Canaanites. But he gives them a promise. I have given the land into his hand. And then everything that follows now from verses 4, from verse 4 all the way through 18 is this recounting of God's promise. Look at the text. Notice in verse 4, the, the first uh, uh, the, the tribes join, and then they head north. In verses 4 through 7, they defeat a massive army of 10,000 people, 10,000 soldiers in Bezek. 
And then they marched to Jerusalem in verse 8, and they captured Jerusalem. And then they turned south. In verse 10, they took, they took Hebron. In verses 11 through 15, they, they captured Debur. Some believe that that account of capturing Debur actually happened in Joshua's day because there's an account of it there as well. But nonetheless, nonetheless, whether it was projected forward or backward, the point remains of God's powerful presence with his people. In verse 17, they, dest- they destroy they destroy Zephath, also known as Hormah. And then in verse 18, we see that they turn their attention. They, they head to the coast. They capture Gaza. They capture Ashkelon. They capture Ekron. When you turn on the news today, I turned on the news just this week, and, and there is a picture at night, the city lights glowing of Ashkelon. And it reminded me, God once led his people to war in that place. And he was faithful. His presence was with them powerfully. And so do you see, we get this this inquiring of the Lord by Israel in crisis. He answers them. And then we get this, 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 this record of, of his answer being fleshed out. Victory after victory. Military success after military success. Now listen, you might read verses 4 to 18, and, and we're not going through it all. I encourage you to go back in your own time. But, but to some, these verses may seem like nothing more than geography. And it is a fun geography lesson. Get, get out your, get out your uh, map in the times of Judges. It's a great little geography lesson. But it seems just like a, okay, well, we got a bunch of geography and, and a list of military successes. But it's far more than that. I love one commentator who said, this list in verses 4 through 18 is what we call theological geography. <laughs> what he means by that is the cities and the regions and the people and the details and the short sub-stories, they all matter. They all happened in real space and time. They are world history, but it's history and it's geography that reveals God's wisdom, that reveals God's assurance to his people, that reveals his power and his presence with his people. This list of cities and and, and military victories, they, they are demonstrations of the supreme supremacy of God at work in through and for his people. And, and, and notice, we, we, the, text, the text actually gives us cues to that fact, doesn't it? I mean, not only does the progression of the narrative tell us that, but, but note, note the statements that go before and after the list of military victories. Look at verse 2 again. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Okay, there's God's wisdom. And then in verse 2, he says, I've given the land into his hand. There's God's assurance. And then in verse 4, it says, Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and parasites into their hands. There's the power of God. 
And then in verse 19, as we end, we are assured this, and the Lord was with Judah. So this list of victories begins with, this is what I'll do. And then there's this demonstration of his power in 4 through 17. And then in verse 18, just in case we're not getting it, the author says, and the Lord was with Judah. That's why the success. The Lord was with us. So, so what's the point here? Joshua is dead, but the kingdom doesn't collapse. <laughs> Joshua is dead, but, but, but God's people and God's kingdom live on. Why? Because Israel's help and hope was not in an earthly hero. It's in the eternal purposes and powerful presence of an almighty God. And isn't it interesting, if you go back to the, the little sub-story of Adonai Bezek, the king that they captured, and they cut off his big, his, his, his thumbs and his big toes. Isn't it interesting? Did you note the, the little detail in verse 7? And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. In other words, yeah, I've done this to plenty of people. And then look what he says. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Even Adonai Bezek, a pagan king, recognizes this is not chance. My fate is not fate. This is the almighty God of Israel. Now, some might argue, well, that should be little g God. I doubt a pagan king. No, I think when given the greater narrative here, it's pretty clear that when the translators put capital G there, Bezek, they're, they're, putting, they're, they're putting those words in his mouth. Bezek recognized, even Bezek recognized the supreme, uh, the supreme supremacy of God in his situation. But here's what we're going to find out. Israel loses sight of the, su of the supreme supremacy of God. More and more, we're going to watch as they drift from God to the world. Again, look at the first verse. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? We're a nation in crisis. Where do we turn? We look to the Lord. That is a hopeful start. Now, just flip over. 21 chapters to the final verse in this book. And by the way, from Judges 1 to Judges, the final verse, 300 years. The period of the Judges was from 1400 to 1100. So 300 years go by right here. 300 years right here. Look how this hopeful start ends. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We're going to see that progression. And that progression should not be lost on us. Because listen, Judges is not about pagan nations. That's not the problem. Judges is about Israel. Judges is about God's people. This series is not about a chaotic world. It's about the church. It's about you and me. It's about our pride and our idolatry. It's about our greed and lust.
It's about our insatiable appetite to do what we think is right in our own eyes instead of turning to God and trusting in him and following him come what may. Judges is not about a chaotic world. It's about the chaotic hearts of God's people who so easily wonder and go from Joshua 1.1 to Joshua 21.25. Not in 300 years, sometimes in three minutes. So this is for us, and perhaps, perhaps you're here this morning and you started your Christian walk in so hopeful. You were in verse 1. But as you sit here this morning, you realize, man, today I'm, li- I'm living in the last verse of Joshua, of Judges. I am. I'm, I am doing what is right in my own eyes. I have made myself king. I have made myself the authority. I, too often I don't inquire of the Lord. Lord, how do you speak to this? Which is right here in his word. Perhaps less and less you are, you are taking your, not taking your burdens to the Lord. You're just pulling up your bootstraps and taking them on yourselves. Perhaps you are increasingly, you find yourself increasingly giving in. Giving in to, 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 to the sinful things that you encounter at work or at school or in the neighborhood. More and more, less and less, you're saying, Lord, help me. Help me fight this fight. And you're just going at your own, your own way. This series is for you. This series is for all of us because I, I would humbly submit to you that all of us can put our finger on some aspect of our lives where we have went from Judges 1, 1 to Judges 21, 25. Now, here's the good news. Judges doesn't leave us to ourselves. Whether it's the macro picture or the micro details, Judges reveals a merciful and gracious God who used flawed and weak people to fulfill his purposes, not just 3,500 years ago, but today. <laughs> today. You don't have to be an amazing leader. You don't have to be part of a theocratic nation. Judges comes to us. It reminds us the story of the Bible that since the garden, God has been building a community of worshipers from Adam to Noah to Abraham and his sons. To, to Moses, to Joshua, and the judges. And it continues to, to a great king named David and, and to prophets. And through it all, God is sufficient and faithful for the mission. We are 3,500 years removed from the beginning days of Judges. But the mission continues. It doesn't end with the judges. They merely point us forward 
to the one who truly would deliver God's people from the consequences of their sin. And that's what the judges were. God used the judges. God used the judges to deliver the people from the consequences of their sin, to bring judgment, but also to move them forward. It's a, we're learning, it's a big spiral. <laughs> people forget about God. They sin. They're judged. They're led back, and it just keeps happening again and again. And we see how this story points us forward in the opening verses. We get a glimpse of our ultimate hope in the midst of Israel's chaos. Look back at verse 1. Look what it says. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Here's the Lord's answer. Judah. Judah. Underline that. Judah. Judah will go. I've delivered the land into his hands. He will go and he will fight for you. He will go and he will destroy the enemy. Judah. This is our second point, something that we so quickly lose sight of, and that is our unfailing hope of Christ, unfailing hope of Christ. Neither Moses nor Joshua were from the tribe of Judah. Judah wasn't the biggest tribe. I believe it was the fourth largest tribe. Judah, up until this point, didn't really have a big role. There were great prophecies about the tribe of Judah. But 400 years after, 400 years after Judges 1-1, there was a man born who would become a great king, David. And he was from the tribe of Judah. Keep your eyes on the tribe of Judah. David was a great king. He was a great leader like Joshua. But even in his greatness, he could not ultimately deliver God's people from the enemy. But a thousand years after David was born, a thousand years later, there came another man. Scripture says that he was from David's line. He is the one that in 2 Samuel, God promised David, your your throne will live forever. And if you look at the genealogies, you find the connection between David, the king from the tribe of Judah, and Jesus. Born from the tribe of Judah. There's this amazing connection. The Bible calls him the son of David. Israel's Messiah. If you go to Revelation 5, Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. Who is what? Who is worthy to open the scroll? 
When God's people inquired who would go against the enemy, God said, Judah. And now the line of Judah, Jesus himself, has gone against the enemy. Not with a sword, but with his blood and his resurrection and his righteous life. And God has handed over the enemy of Satan and sin to him like Judah went went to the enemy for the tribe. So Jesus goes to our greatest enemy, sin and Satan. And God has given those enemies into his hands so that we could be saved from the consequences of our sin. And that battle has been won. (laughs) That battle will never be fought again. That battle... The battle to defeat sin and death, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is done. It's over. Oh, we might fight little fights in our own life as believers against Satan and against sin and against the the temptations of this world, but the battle is over. You can take the words that Samuel wrote in Judges 1-2. The Lord has given the enemy over to Judah and say, God, you have given over the enemy of Satan and my sin to your son, Jesus Christ. It's done. It's over. And if you're here this morning, you're not a believer. And none of this makes sense. Maybe you feel chaotic. This story is for you. This truth is for you. You do not have to live in your sin. You do not have to live day by day. Right? You're searching. You're longing for something. Whether it's acceptance or it's power or it's a cause. It's relevance. Nothing in this world can give you what you're looking for. But Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, the one who has went before you, And defeated the enemy of your sin and Satan. Who right now has you in his grips. Oh Jesus that one says come to me all you who are weary. Come to me. Your burden is great. And boy we don't even know. You don't even know how great your burden is. Because the burden of your sin cannot be removed apart from someone outside of you removing it. You can't do enough good. You can't be relevant enough. You can't be inclusive enough. There is nothing that anyone can do to relieve themselves of the burden. Remember the backpack, the Christian war, and the pilgrim's progress. There's nothing you can do to throw that off. But praise be to God because his son Jesus Christ took that and he put it upon himself. And he says, by faith... By faith, the load that I bore on the cross for you is yours to have eternal life. Barry Webb says, Joshua made a great impact on his generation and left behind him people who worked together, called on God and moved at his command and experienced his blessing. As Christians, we all share in a far greater legacy for the whole church of which we are part is 
the legacy of Jesus Christ. Oh, church, that is our legacy. The gospel is our legacy. (coughs) It's the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. The lion of Judah, will you come to him this morning if you don't know him? Humble yourself. Cry out for mercy. There's no secret prayer to pray. Jesus just says, come to me with humble heart and a full assurance that I can, that I have defeated your enemy and I can give you eternal life. So we're going to see we're going to see the supreme supremacy of God in the midst of the chaos, something we we have to fight to remember in our own chaos. We are going to see on every page and in every chapter small glimpses of the hope that we have, the greater legacy even than Israel had, Jesus Christ, who is our peace in the chaos. But there's one more thing here, and it might surprise you. There's one more thing here. And that is the irreplaceable value of Christian unity. The irreplaceable value of Christian unity. Our legacy isn't found in a theological hero or a national identity. Our legacy is a gospel legacy. We are the fruit of Christ's work meant to impact a chaotic world. So here's a question. How do we do that? Here's the answer, together, together. Unity is a primary theme in the book of Judges. Samuel, by the way, Judges was probably written by Samuel. Samuel, Samuel brings to our attention the deterioration of the corporate unity in the book of Judges. He draws attention to it. We're going to see that five or six different times. We are going to see where Samuel includes detail that reminds us, well, they don't really seem that unified as the people of God. And that's part of that track to doing what is right in our own eyes. Now, it didn't start this way. Notice verse 3. It's an easy, easy thing to lose sight of. Notice verse 3. Who who will go for us? The Lord says, Judah. Now, look at verse 3. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother. By the way, Simeon was nothing. (laughs) Simeon was, uh, Jacob tried, Jacob basically disowned Simeon. Simeon is the one tribe Moses didn't even bless. And you can just go read about Simeon. Simeon was guilty of horrific acts that the Lord was not pleased with. Simeon, their their allotment was actually a round circle surrounded by the allotment of Judah. And eventually, Simeon just disappeared. They just were incorporated into the tribe of Judah. So Simeon was a nothing, and yet, notice in verse 3, and Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we, that we may fight against the Canaanites 
And I likewise will go with you and the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. And then look at verse 17. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated. They defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted to its destruction. Unity. Judah just didn't strike out on their own. <coughs> it wasn't every tribe for itself. There was a unity amongst God's people that God used to demonstrate his power. God put his finger on Judah to lead the way, but the battle against the enemy was going to be difficult. So Judah did not launch out alone. They fought the fight together. Together. And as we've already seen in verses 4 through 18, that strengthened the nation of Israel. Corporate unity is essential in judges because it's a primary way that we experience God's sufficiency and faithfulness, togetherness. The, 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 the key to seeing Christ in the chaos is seeing the wonders of love, of Christ's love for his people. That, that, that is, that's the key. It's not just being here on Sunday morning. That's important. But why am I here on Sunday morning? Why should I be here on Sunday morning? Because that's a battlefield out there. And when I come in here, my eyes are set on the love of Christ for me. And because he loves me, the promise and commitment that he makes to me to be useful out there and to be able to stand strong out there. The Apostle Paul prayed this very thing in Ephesians 3.17. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend. And look what he says. With all the saints. In other words, togetherness. Together. How? How will we comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God? Together with all the saints. There's a togetherness. Paul, in a sense, is, is saying grasping the, grasping the limitlessness of Christ's love for us and God's faithfulness to us is not something that we can do in isolation. If left to ourselves, the fight for faith becomes chaotic because we, we become weak. And, and how this works is pretty simple, right? I mean, when, when, when believers begin to just, when we get off on our own, we just begin to live in this cocoon, right? Of our own thoughts, of our own perspective. And there's nobody really there to help us see where we're, see clearly where we're not seeing clearly. There's nobody there to help us when we're, when we're getting off, when we're really in sin. And so my world just becomes what I think is right. I mean, it, it, we're seeing it in this culture. It is the authority of emotion. It is the authority of what I think. 
And you must receive it and embrace it and believe it with me. Will we just get off? It's part of the effect of social media on our society. We're at home in our basements in our pajamas, and we can say whatever we want, and we don't have to listen to anybody else. There's nobody there to push back a little bit. There's nobody there to say, hey, can you explain why, how you got to this place? But pretty soon, my little kingdom just becomes that. And what is right in the eyes of the Lord over time, and it's subtle, becomes what? really is right in my own eyes. Oh, how we need each other. I can remember early on in my walk with the Lord, particularly in the area of finances, my thoughts about my struggles and finances, now that I'm a Christian, they were out there. Whew. I remember telling my community group leader, boy, I was doing a lot better before I got saved. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, man, I got no money right now. It's like the Lord just dried up my real estate business. And he reminded me, well, hell's a lot worse <laughs> than being poor. But had he not been there, I'm just in this rabbit hole of my own thoughts and my own affections and what I think is true and what I think is right. And it's just... There's nobody there. And before you know it, I am in a place of peril. Everything, everyone is just doing what's right in their own eyes. How do we get there? That's how we get there. How do we guard against that? Unity. Life with one another. I'm not talking about a, a, a Benedict. I'm not. I'm not talking about uh, you know the life of a monk. The the, the what's that book? The the Benedict. Uh, uh, I, I can't remember what it was, but the idea of just okay, everybody is getting their bubble. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about unity. We heard it this morning. It's one of the reasons why Sunday morning is so important. Hear your pastor's care in that. Read this book. He's right. Hebrew, you, you realize the, 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 the audience that Hebrews was being written to, their lives were in chaos, and they were doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. You know what? This Christianity thing, it's costing me. I think I'm going to just kind of, I'm going to pull away from the church and kind of half to go back to some of my Judaism, and I can kind of do a, and he's saying, no, 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 if you do that, there's nothing to go back to. This, this great salvation, if you leave, if you, there's nothing for you there. These people, their lives were chaotic. They were being ostracized. Their, their parents were cutting them off. That meant money in the future. No inheritance. And what does the writer of Hebrews say? He says, listen... I want to tell you about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, who is your only hope. I know Moses was great. I know Melchizedek was uh, an amazing high priest. But I want to tell you about one who is the ultimate. It's Jesus Christ. And then the clearest command he gives to them is what? It's in Hebrews 10. Don't forsake the gathering. What are you guys doing? 
Do you realize how difficult the fight is? What are you doing? <laughs> in raw terms, get in church. Sundays matter more than we can imagine. When it comes to the chaos in your life, gathering with your church to pray and sing and serve and sit under God's preached word and even just to go and watch others who you know are struggling too and to see their joy and to see their hopefulness. The Lord uses that to strengthen your own faith. The Lord uses that to help you see, well, God is at work. I have hope. I was just on the phone with somebody this week, called me old community group leader's wife when we were part of the church up in Phoenix got drop foot. So I want to hear your story. So I explained to her how my back was injured. I had drop foot and the Lord healed it. And by the time we were off the phone, she said, Derek, I am so filled with hope for my own situation now. That's just an earthly matter. How much more spiritually? How much more spiritually? This is why gathering with God's people matters. It brings clarity. It brings faith. It gives us ammunition and it produces strength for the spiritual battle that we encounter every day. I love what Del Ralph Davis said. The unity and fellowship, and this is his, this is his commentary on, on our text. The unity and fellowship of God's people is not a wimpy idea weaker Christians dote on. It is an essential condition for experiencing the strength of God. And what we will see is as Israel's unity deteriorated, they spiraled downward. If I can have the worship team come up. Listen, it's going to be a ride the next 21 weeks. It's going to be a good ride. You parents are going to have conversations with your kids. The Lord is going to meet us. Judges may have happened long ago in a faraway land, but it couldn't be more relevant for us today because ultimately, Judges points us forward to Jesus and his coming kingdom where we live together now even as a shining light for the glory of God, the renown of Jesus Christ and the salvation of sinners with, and don't leave this part out because it's the best part, with the eager hope of heaven. Let's stand and sing.